Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Greetings, greetings, greetings. It is now the Geostrategic Hour with our main host, who needs no introduction at all. It is the one and only Matthew Errett. Uh, CJ is working the airwaves. He is sitting somewhere in a tropical island. It's so nice outside. I refuse <laughs> to CJ be is live from Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Matt's going to break down a lot of things for us. Folks, make sure you go to the description box. Click on those links uh, to thecanadianpatriot.com, thecanadianpatriot.com. Matthew has written him extensively. He's a scholar, he's a researcher, he's somebody who has a deep, deep knowledge on what is going on geopolitically, geostrategically, geoeconomically, and understanding the multipolar world and the multipolar reality. Uh, what we try to do here is make you stop thinking binary. Republican, Democrat, Labor, Tory, Coke, Pepsi. You got to think bigger. And uh, go check out CanadianPager.com as well as the Rising Tide Foundation. The links are in the description box. And join his Substack if you haven't done so already. What the heck are you waiting for? And in 48 hours, Matthew will be back with us next week. But but in 48 hours, we're going to be back on our on our, our main channel. So I'm looking forward to that. And then Matthew's going to be back on the main channel with us. It's going to be rocking and rolling. So make sure you guys subscribe, like, comment, share. Let your friends know. And with that being said, Matthew Errett. What's up, buddy? Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me back on. And uh, yeah, YouTube is going to let you out of the doghouse. I yeah, don't think I'd ever see the day. Free and clear. We've been forgiven of our sins. Uh, oh, yeah. You know what it is? It's. It's. I did penance. I, I flew over to California. I uh, took out a uh, Buddhist prayer beads. Okay, uh, or the equivalent of a Catholic rosary, and I took these Buddhist prayer weave, uh, uh, You know, prayer beads. Prayer, beads. prayer yeah. weaves. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> prayer weaves. <laughs> Ah, my God! Anyway, so you, you did your your uh, your Hale Zuckerberg's? <laughs> yes, I, I did my Hale Zuckerberg and hello to uh, uh, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, and I climbed the steps while beating myself on the back with a USB cord. <laughs> uh, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So they're letting us out of the jungle, man, and uh, we're going to CJ and I are going to be in our best behavior. We're going to be doing uh, beauty and and, uh, and dress up tutorials. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> Really, six months of cat videos and interesting. That's stories. it. That's <laughs> it. Matt, yeah. there's a lot going on. Um, yeah. Exceptional stand. I don't know if you for before we get into the, today's topic, which is understanding what the Green New Deal is all about. Mm -hmm. It's a euphemism for deindustrialization. It's a euphemism for techno neo feudalism. Uh, anybody who thinks that there's such thing as a free lunch, you're in for it. Green New Deal is going to be catastrophic. The green economies don't work. Every country that has ever implemented it has failed miserably. 
every green job they created, they lost ten to fifteen jobs in the in the real economy. You you could ask Spain. Um, but before we get into that, did you hear what happened in Syria over the weekend uh, with news sources out of Lebanon? Um, the Russian airstrike that killed over two hundred militants. Did you hear about that? Please tell me about it. I, I Ooh, heard that you're going did to a... love this. There's three it. things that happened, and yeah. then we'll get into it. First and foremost, Russians. Ever since Putin gave his speech, that he, you know what, we're not gonna, we're not gonna take it lying down anymore. Okay, we're we're done. We're done playing games with you guys. We're gonna expose you for the who the who the hell you guys really are. The Russians have a zero tolerance policy right now to militants towards Syria. They're literally liquidating every single terrorist network, cell, holdout, forward operating base, you name it, in and around Syria. Many of those areas that were captured by the recent ISIS insurgents by the, ever since the cardboard cutout and chief, you know, came to office, those areas have been re-liberated and those people that are perpetrated that have been liquidated. Now, the latest airstrike is literally a stone throw away from a U.S. military base. That uh, Zerkovia, the woman, I forgot who she was, the, the foreign press secretary for, for, for Russia. Oh, Zakharova. Zakharova, yeah. Uh, she mentioned it, and also I think it was Shoigu who said that the only, the only uh, remaining terrorist uh, um, uh, uh, forces that are moving are basically in the U.S., the United States military camp that they have over there. And in the U.S. held areas, <laughs> so that so in other words, uh, if you're looking at the satellite, the only terrorist activity you see is the ones that are going in and out of an American military base. Talk mm. about check and mate. Now, on top of that, we we know about the humanitarian crisis that's in Syria, the starvation that is there. I mean, it's terrible. So Iran and uh, Russian uh, merchant ships have, and Iranian oil tankers have pulled into Syria. Their, Iran is giving oil to Syria, paid for by who? China, okay? And hmm. this alleviates some of the problem that, that the Syrians are suffering. And then the yeah. Russian ships are supplying wheat and flour, okay? So this is huge news. In other words, Exceptional Stand just got bitch slapped in the Middle East. Yeah, yeah. There was a U.S. naval blockade. The Russian Navy just went right through it. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Mm-hmm. And, and the U.S. stood there, but we're the indispensable nation, Mm-hmm. We're the city on the hill. And, uh, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Well, that's that's, that's the, the, the beauty of, of the Russia-China alliance. It's just that they both have skill sets that they've offered and brought to the table. That each yeah. each individual nation, if they were by themselves, Russia or China individually, would be easily undermined, I think, based upon the, the nature of the power structure that's formed over the past 40, 50 years, uh, especially during the Cold War, right, of this oligarchical system. Yeah. But in but together and now combined with increasingly Iran um, as a as a trifecta of these different major civilizations with with great aptitudes in various ways, Russia yeah. has a military intelligence capability that is bar none the best in the world. Yep. Their their economic liberties, their their ability to have the type of economic choices and ability to carry out programs the way China can is limited. They still have problems with their central bank. Uh, they have problems with liquidity. They have problems with planning, economic, uh, long-term thinking. And they also have a lot of infiltration of things like Cargill, a lot of Western influences controlling some of the, the levers of that type of management. Whereas China doesn't have any of that type of baggage. They've right. been able to keep, they're, I think, the only nation that's really kept a strong nationally controlled central banking system in place. 
which has given them the ability to get things done fast and well. So they've been able to build economic projects like nobody's business, even though their their military is is weaker by by many magnitudes than that of Russia. But together, they're able to go into a region like the Middle East and, and totally change yeah and change the rules of the game Absolutely. entirely. Absolutely. Um, Look yeah. at what happened to the Ukraine real quick. Um, mm. You know, we had uh, the the Jewish comedian leading the army of Nazis. <laughs> okay, uh, Zelensky. Now he backed down, and of course the New York slimes will spin it as, "Oh, look, the Russians got chickened out." No, that's not what happened. The Ukrainians and the U.S. backed proxies backed down, and I, you know, did some calls on the back end. You know what? The, you know what was the the shocking, overwhelming theme was? The theme was this: the United States. And if you notice, they they, they had two ships that were sailing towards the Caspian, the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. What happened? They turned tail. They canceled. They, yeah, they canceled. Uh, what happened? And no, it wasn't a strategy. They literally pulled back. And shortly after that, Zelensky pulled right back the Ukrainian forces and the quote-unquote American um, advisors as a euphemism for American special forces okay, and contractors. The, the U.S. and NATO were shocked. They were shocked that Russia could mobilize such an overwhelming show of force in such a short period of time. The amount of force that was projected on that border was so powerful, so rapid, so overwhelming, so lethal, and in such a short amount of time that it would have taken NATO and the U.S. over two months to even get something that big in place. They, they were they couldn't believe it. No, oh, yeah, they were outclassed. They were totally outclassed. They don't have that operational capability, and they can't figure out how. Well, this is where I, I think, and, and uh, CJ and I were, were just chatting before the show a little bit about it, how important it is to have a sense of humor. And that's why I just love talking with you guys every week, because you 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 have that flexibility. You got you can laugh at this ugly insanity, because it's completely inside out. It's Alice in Wonderland. And these guys, it, you, to get into the sense of thinking of these geostrategists uh, in the West, you have to get into the seat of crazy a little bit. Because they yeah. are crazy as much as and people are like, oh, but if they had so much money and influence and power that they can project, then they must be smart. They must know things we don't know. No. And it's like, yeah, no, not really. I mean, this is uh there's there's a lot of crazy factor here. And, and by appreciating that, you can g- get a sense of where are its weaknesses, where are it's self-contradictory. Wh- where is it going to self-destruct? Where is it already self-destructing? Um, because there's a lot of reason to be reasonably hopeful, although very cautious and weary, because when you have crazy plus nuclear missile ac- uh, availability or access uh, that could blow up the world. And and we do have a certain level of, of psychopathy. That's the weirdest way I've ever pronounced that word, psychopathy. Uh, you, you have some, uh, some psychopaths right now who are willing to burn the earth rather than lose their, their perceived um, right to control the world. Of course. Um, so that's, that's a factor to be weary of. If, um, if, if anyone wants to see how psychopathic the United States is, listen to... Mm-hmm. The recent um, forum they did in Australia where John Mearsheimer, okay, mm-hmm. John Mearsheimer is a psychopath of the umpteenth degree. This is a guy who, uh, in a debate, told uh, somebody, yeah, I, I would, uh, I, I want China's economy destroyed so we won't ha- or slowed down so we don't have a, an economic rival. And his the person that he was debating was like, wait a minute, so you're willing to risk the, the destruction of the lives of hundreds of millions of people just so that you could be number one. He's like, well, not to, you know, mince words, but yeah, what's wrong with that? And, and, and these and guys again, are crazy. 
And it's ironic that this is an Australian whose economy, Australia's economy is primarily resource exports. Yep. Um, their economy is contingent upon China importing their resources and, and having a successful economy. Already, like, I mean, the amount of Chinese students studying in Australia is something like 30, 40%. I mean, it's huge. And now they're just cutting it all off. They're saying, we're, we're going to cut all of that off because China, we're being told, is our enemy. And uh, and they're self-destroying themselves. They're, they're saying they want China to be undermined or, or to go away. It's like they're they're destroying themselves to make their enemy disappear. And it's not even their enemy. It's the source of their own survival. Yeah. And Canada, here where I live, it's doing the exact same thing. The United States is doing the same thing. Um, like we, we, you know. It, and and, and it, here's, yeah. here's exactly where we segue into what you're going to be talking about today. Mm -hmm. They're basically being told to snub the industrial multipolar world and embrace the deindustrialized neo-feudalism, which is the Green New Deal. Yeah. Matthew, take us through it, brother. Exactly. No, and, and this is really I Joe Biden, we know that a few weeks ago he was on the phone with the, the Prime Minister of Britain and he said, you know, uh China's BRI has to be matched by a Western controlled, a US controlled a version of the Belt and Road Initiative in order to capture and attract all of the countries around the world to a better way of doing things that keeps the rule of law in place. Now, what the hell is he talking about? Um, I know a couple of weeks ago on our show, we talked about the the Osawag plan, this, this green grids program from Asia through the Middle East to Africa that, uh, that the British Commonwealth and the World Bank have been pushing as one aspect of this. Uh, but the Green New Deal that's tied very closely to the Great Reset is of uh, the, the topic of the discussion. This is how he's thinking about it, or how he, I shouldn't say he's thinking because Biden thinking doesn't mean anything. But that's how he's he's being programmed to speak uh, by his programmers. <clears throat> uh, the way that they're thinking about this is to say, okay, the U.S. economy needs to revive. We're we're obviously going to need a completely new system. That's that's what the Great Reset was about. And right. up until last year, uh, you know. January, February of last year before COVID, that was the big thing was the whole Democratic Party uh, rallied around the Green New Deal. Uh, Cortez, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez first announced it in 2019 as if, I mean, this, this girl's a bartender. She's not a, she's not a, a thought leader. She doesn't have thoughts. She's, she's been talent searched and she says things uh, much like Biden who has less talent, I guess. Um, but but this this was put on the table as a way to say, OK, we're going to have an economic collapse. We're going to have an economic we're going to need a complete change of the economy uh, and we're going to have to create jobs. And it's got to have to follow new rules of value, because obviously just letting everybody do whatever the, the markets say didn't work that well for the past 40 years of deregulation. Um, that just created speculative bubble after speculative bubble. So that that's got to go. And, and that's right to say that that has to go. But then the 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 poison was seeped in with this idea that okay we, we're going to have a green version of the New Deal, and this is going to involve three trillion dollars. That that's what Biden just announced uh, on April. I, I think it's April twenty second to twenty third. He hosted with uh, um, with uh, John Kerry. They hosted a uh, a climate summit of world leaders. So forty <laughs> leaders were sort of like yeah. It was a joke. And 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 you could see that the, the, nobody really fully respected them, except for those who are already like who've drank the Kool-Aid in the transatlantic zone. We're all repeating the same build back better crap that was like pre-programmed by, you know, behaviorists <laughs> in the World Economic Forum. Um, so all so, the billions of dollars spent tra traversing the world and trying to carve it up and all the, 
fictitious fraudulent financial instruments that have been that has been that have been exposed as fraud. Yeah. The delinquents from Davos, the only thing they can come up with is 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 a a, a build back better. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, really it's so, what does yeah. it mean? What does it, it even means, mean? It means nothing. Exactly. And and they started putting a little bit of meat onto the bones of this inoculus idea that was essentially, you know, it, it started with you know, COP nineteen or uh, what was it? COP sixteen originally. The the Paris Climate Accords uh, were all versions of this idea of getting all of the nations of the world to commit to decarbonizing their economies, shutting down industrial civilization by a, a specific year. In this case, it was arbitrarily selected as twenty fifty. Um, and Biden came out of this this April twenty second, twenty third summit that he hosted, saying that the U.S. is committed to fifty or fifty two percent of uh, reduction below 2005 levels of CO2 emissions by the year 2050, but they're going to have like 30% reduction by 2035. All of these things are, they don't mean anything because they have no way of doing that. Like right now, the US has something like 1800 coal-fired plants, which is like fundamentally important just to maintain basic baseline electricity needs, 1800 plants. According to that commitment, you'll have to shut down 11 plants every month all the way until 20, 2035 to do that. Uh, what are you going to replace it with? Does he does he have a nuclear policy? That might do it. Nuclear policy nope. could, oh, like a nuclear, yeah. The nuclear could, 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 terrified of nuclear energy. Terrified of nuclear. They're staying away from that. They have no policy for that. In fact, they're Not doing only the opposite. That, here's another thing that people don't realize. With the nuclear yeah. power plants, right? I had a, mm -hmm. a gentleman who worked um, in the... Um, the um the nuclear energy um administration the nea right and um yeah. one of the things that they found was there is a dearth of talented individuals who have the talent the skills and the know-how to help maintain much of the automated systems that are in nuclear power plants so many of the nuclear power plants that are in the united states are very old yeah. they're very dilapidated they're behind the times they are behind the rest of the developed world in terms of technology. Mm -hmm. And there's nobody skilled enough to come up and to replace them because what you're having is a bunch of kids who don't know what gender they are to begin with as a baseline. Yeah, they're, they're exactly. Yeah, they're not even, I, I have a friend who's working in, uh, in thorium, molten salt thorium reactors in, uh, in Ontario. And, um, and he was telling me that they can't even build a prototype of some of the new designs. They're all, for, for the few students who are actually working in the field, and it's very few compared to what it was a few generations ago, they've, like you said, they've put all of the money and resources into sociology, uh, you know, sexual gender studies, and the actual hard sciences needed to build society and maintain it, that is, that's been completely dropped. So it's very, very, it's, it's a small fraction of what it used to be compared, especially to the types of, if you look at Russian students, Chinese students, they're actually, they got their priorities in a, in a better place. And they're producing students with the knowledge needed to build and improve upon and make discoveries for the future, especially in domains like nuclear. Um, so right now, um, in fact, I was just thinking, I was looking at, a, at, a, at an article today, uh, Cuomo, who's uh, sort of become a genius. Oh, yeah. Uh, this guy actually shut down. New York gets about 35% of their nu their electricity from a, a nuclear power unit in uh, Indian Point. Indian Point. Yeah, it has two reactors in it. I live right across the river from the Indian Point. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, 30, 35% of your electricity and Cuomo, who's committed to uh, shutting down, I think he, he wants to have 85% uh, carbon shut down by 2050. Yes. Um, Kill New York even more. Legally binding. Um, he just shut down the first of the two uh, reactors and the second one is going to be shut down next week. 
And what's he re- what's he going to replace it with? Nothing, Nuclear- because this is why. Oh, no, 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 he'll re- he'll replace it with something. Oh. This, is the, this is the irony, right? This is the German problem. Uh, it's going to be, you know, natural gas plants. So they're 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 building and they've put online last year and then this year two natural gas plants, which are going to be massive producers of CO two. Now I'm not afraid of CO two. I, I think that that's I'm going to actually talk about that. I'm going to show some slides why nobody should be afraid of CO two and why that that's not a pollutant. However. Nuclear energy, nuclear plants release zero CO2. It's water vapor. It's nothing. I mean, it, you know, it, and you could process the waste. They call it waste. They bury it. And sure, that's stupid. But you could you have technology that's available to process the waste and reuse it. So uh, a lot of the arguments against nuclear are completely fallacious. And for those uh, plants that do have problems or that have had problems like in Fukushima or in Chernobyl, if you actually look at why they had problems, it was because you had things like one obsolete technologies that were being used from the 1950s or early 60s that were never never upgraded. And sure, if you if you just cut corners and you use obsolete technology, sure they will they will have problems like meltdowns. But number two, in the case of Fukushima, it wasn't a nuclear reactor disaster. It was <laughs> it was like 1,500 people or 15,000 people getting killed by a tsunami. Nobody died of the reactor or even the meltdown. It was the tsunami that know, killed Matt, these people. I, I went to uh, Billy Bob's Conspiracy Corner.com and uh, they told me that uh, my salmon that I'm eating is blowing the dark. Yeah. So it's, it's 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 a lot of just fear. But And here's the irony, and, and it is going to get fold back into the Green New Deal thing, is that our priorities in the West are so inverted and out of whack that a lot of the things that people are really being trained to be afraid of, they shouldn't be afraid of. And a lot of the things that they should be afraid of, they're actually not afraid of. And that's part of the irony, right? Like they're, they're afraid of the climate catastrophe. Apparently like all of the nations of the world are in a climate emergency. Yeah. 10 Um, years lockdown, man. 10 years. we, We wasted four years with Trump. Now we have, I'm sorry, we have eight years left before the end of the world. Yeah, exactly. Whether yeah. it's whether it's Prince Charles or Greta or Bill Gates, they're all telling us, you know, we got like you know, oh, 18 man. months to 10 years and then the world is over. And I mean, this is what little kids are being fed in schools, that yeah, they're 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 a virus that's causing the destruction of the planet. Uh, that's inducing massive psychological mass trauma in a whole generation of young people who I'm afraid when they're going to go, you know, these, these 10, 12, 13, 16 year olds, even who have been through this processing, when they go into the workforce, by the time that they're 20 to 25, holy sh- my God, you, function. you hit the nail on the head. Fundamentally, you, you, you touched base on two things. Number one, when you, when young kids are taught, Hey, you, your gender is fluid. You mm-hmm. be like, your gender is like water. It can become anything it wants. If you feel like peanut butter, then that's your gender. Yeah. And then you're taught uh, beyond that the, the world's going to end in climate change and that you're a virus. In other words, when you're, when it, when you're basically teaching a child between all the gender studies bullshit and all the climate change into the world bullshit and that humanity is a cancer, you are teaching the child to hate him or herself mm-hmm. off the bat. You're creating all sorts of issues. And here's the thing: with with self hate comes an ability to an inability to love others properly, yeah. also, because you have to love yourself to love others, and so that that will create a fertile soil of a cult of misanthropy, misanthropy, right? A, a whole ethic where which is very different from anything we have ever known in Western civilizations past, except for maybe the Dark Ages, where people did actually have it was obviously very misanthropic and people hated humanity for valid empirical reasons in many ways, because it was a dark age, right? Like mass death, hard to find love. Uh, but that's what they're creating as a new synthetic cult religion for a whole generation of people in the Western world. 
is a society of self-hate and hating others. And thus it's, it's hard to creatively problem solve, right? If you have an ability to end hunger, to end empire, to end evil, to do, to be an instrument for justice, your ability to actually channel that and advance that mandate that we have as being human, uh, it's gone. You don't have access to it. Right. So, and that, that's been programmed. It's been thought through we're actually going to get into that. Uh, so here, so for the time being, what, what I wanted to focus on in the, in the course of the next 30 or 35 minutes is the green new deal more directly. Cause what is this most specifically now people can look at the individual policies of like what Biden is saying for his $3 trillion infrastructure plan to create jobs and build back. Um, I made it, I made a little swipe at, at Germany when I called uh, Cuomo's New York thing, the Germany problem. And I mean, it's the same thing. Germany, what, what, what they did by shutting down, committing to completely shut down their nuclear reactors, um, which they're they're completely shutting down. Um, it was 30% of their energy basket. They're now forced, ironically, to rely on other countries, Poland, the Czech Republic, to import coal-fired energy, which is, you know, that's dirty energy and that pr produces CO2, up to 60 to 75% increased imports of coal energy is now being used by Germans who now think that they're oh all self-righteous and clean because they're not into nuclear like it makes no sense and that's exactly what people are saying regarding like what windmill solar panels is that's is that what's going to replace all of the uh the, the coal plants that you're shutting down no because it is understood scientifically that if you have windmills and solar panel uh, solar panels covering your nation, which already give you unreliable, low quality energy, and it's very expensive, you're going to need backups because they, they sometimes there is no wind and there's no sun. So where are you going to get the energy? It's going to be from coal plants that always have to be running as a backup anyway. And then I was just listening to the radio. I'm going on a rant. I'm, I, I actually have a PowerPoint I'm going to show, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> there, there's uh, I was listening on the radio. I was driving my car in traffic and you know, you had all these experts talking about how great uh, solar panel energy was because the technology is improving so much that what used to be whatever it was 45 cents per gigawatt hour is now down to uh five six cents which is like on par with like coal and natural gas energy and they're saying oh it's the technology is so great because so look look how cheap it is and uh, you know no actually when you look into it the technology is not that great it hasn't really changed or advanced that much these photovoltaic cells the only thing that's changed that's caused the price to 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 uh, fall is that increased government subsidies have been infusing cash, taxpayer cash yep. into these private companies uh, that make the solar panels and that can thus, thus charge the users less, but not really because the users are still paying for that energy in the form of their tax money. That's going to just pay these private companies you know, to, to subsidize them. So yeah, it's actually I mean, not the case. No, you have um, whole, you have whole industries. And, and this is why this whole greening of the economy, this, this deindustrialization is basically looting on a grand scale. When you look at what's happening with um, the, um, the um, uh, you know, the, su the subsidies, they're also subsidizing electric cars, right? Governments, oh, you buy an electric car, we'll give you a $10,000 tax credit, this, that, and the other. These are industries that will never survive on their own they're being artificially propped up. This is not going to end well because people, I'm getting a great deal on my electric car. Jackass, your taxes are up. Think. This is what people don't get, man. It's unbelievable. No, no exactly. So, here, yeah. And, and that's where if you look at the, the, the difference between the real New Deal, right, the New Deal from the 1930s that is sort of there in the, the collective zeitgeist 
in some way. Like people generally are positive about the idea that Hitler, Hitler and Mussolini did not win World War II. Um, they don't know how that happened because our history books have been so controlled and rewritten for us that the actual fight that took place in the 1930s, before World War II even started, the fight had already begun to against the Wall Street London nexus that was funding fascism as the right. economic miracle solution for the Great Depression that was already manufactured in 1929 uh, globally, starting yeah. in the United, United States. But it was already a manufactured thing to create the blowout of the system and a, a banker's dictatorship with fascist uh, enforcers doing the dirty work on the ground for, for their masters. That's all Hitler and Mussolini really were until Hitler started misbehaving and following his generals who told him to do something else instead of following the London line. And, you know, that caused the, the British oligarchs who had funded Hitler and continued to fund Hitler. There was a faction fight within Britain itself, as with the United States. Um, they, they Hitler was like, OK, I, I want to be the leader of the New World Order. I want uh, the financiers in London to be my my, my partners as equals. And the, 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 his financiers, the people actually controlling the eugenics movement, the, the money bags, uh, the Bank of International Settlements that was providing the means for all of Hitler's money to come through all of the countries he was annexing. Um, these guys were like, no, no, the New World Order is what we said it was. That's why we put you in power was to make it happen, facilitate it, destroy Russia. Russia Germany, you could. the plan was you can control Russia the Slavic dirty races as your producer zone. You know, you could have Ukraine, you could have Poland, you could have Russia, and they would be your slave society that would produce the minerals and the agriculture for your part of the world. We would, you know, that would be your jurisdiction is that little zone. Uh, but we would be the dominant force, not you. And so at a certain point, and that's why Hitler let Britain win like, or let them off the hook like eight times when he could have smashed them during World War II is because he liked Britain. He was like, you have to control. Yeah, he, was, he was an Anglophile, man. He's a total Anglophile. He loved it. And and he's like, you know, Britain has to control Africa and, and, uh, and you know, India and China. I, we don't know how to do that so well, but but we want to be partners. And so anyway, that, that was the thing. So what caused that to, to not succeed? That was Franklin Delano Roosevelt reviving the Abraham Lincoln McKinley policy of the protective tariff of state credit towards large scale infrastructure. And he had to take on the banking structures in London. He did that in 1933 when he torpedoed the London conference. That was the great, there was actually a, the great reset today is not a new thing. Nope. We've talked about this before, but there was the great reset conference in 1933, London, 65 nations were being strong armed to get on board with a new miracle solution of putting the league of nations and the bank, the bank of England into the driver's seat of the world and to reset the world economy under a central bankers dictatorship. FDR went into this thing. And sabotaged the whole thing. He just basically pulled the U.S. out of all agreements. Um, he basically, without the U.S., they couldn't do very much. And uh, and then when that was sufficiently sabotaged and the King of England had to come out and say, okay, the, the conference is canceled after six months, <laughs> then FDR was able to do a proper battle. Actually, he was already simultaneously waging. And this is inspiring. If you actually like read the the, the speeches, the writings, look at the policy fights, it's inspiring and we're not taught about this in school, but he actually had a, a, a policy fight, a major one. People were getting killed against the Wall Street power structure, which he brought J.P. Morgan, Jean-Pierre Pont Morgan Jr. to uh, to trial with thousands of other bankers that manipulated the stock markets throughout the 1920s. 
under Ferdinand Pecor and the Pecor commissions. He brought in Glass-Steagall by breaking up the banks. Love the Pecor commission. We need one again. Yeah. Um, he created the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission. He, he created all sorts of things that put a leash onto these financiers. Um, and that gave the U.S. the ability to start emitting credit through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation that was created by the U.S. government to bypass the Federal Reserve by emitting credit into vital infrastructure like the Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, the Hoover Dam Project, the, the St. Lawrence Seaway. Thousands of projects were built up, small and big. And the Civilian Conservation Corps was put to work, not the Civilian Conservation Corps of Joe Biden, because he's he's using all of the terminology of the New Deal. But it's the, the Biden version is just get young people to start working for cheap on solar panels. You know, um, there's no there's no idea of national product productive progress or increasing the, the powers of the nation to produce. That's not there. It's the opposite. So the what 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 Biden is being put online to do with the Green New Deal is the total inverse it's it's actually run and and the architects of the green new deal are the very same institutions of the city of london and wall street that that fdr fought and stopped years and years ago are you guys still there or am i alone no i'm i'm, I'm here okay i just saw my screen pop up so i was no sure. cj he he just popped another edible He's oh okay <laughs> no i did not so uh here's the thing so now we have um, the, the, okay, the Green New Deal. What is this? And this is where I want to do a little bit of, I got about 13 slides, some graphs to get into the science. And, if, and I started with a few quotes and I ended with one quote just to get across the, the, the causal guiding intention. Um, so I'm going to do a little screen share right now. Uh, share screen. Um, yes. Sorry, give me a second. You know, uh, you know you know, the one thing that I loved about the 33 London Economic Conference, yeah. right, one of the things that Roosevelt said was so true. He said, you know, he called it the old fetishes of the so-called international bankers. It's so yes. true. These, it, it's never went away. Never, never. It's the same thing. Um, now they have a dimwit bartender from the from New York who claims to have grown up in the Bronx. Meanwhile, she's, she grew up in uh, Yorktown Heights. Average price of a home is $1.1 <laughs> Absolutely. Can can you guys see my uh, my screen here? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Absolutely. Okay, awesome. So I, I wanted to just dedicate this little mini presentation on the genocidal roots of the Green New Deal to Prince Philip, um, who uh, passed away a couple of weeks ago at the age of ninety nine. Um, may he rest in hell. May he rest in hell. Uh, and specifically, I had a conversation with a friend of mine. Um, a, a fellow writer in, who's based in Thailand, and we were just sort of commenting on on Prince Philip's famous quote from uh, 1988 from the Deutsche uh, Presse Agentur. Anyway, it's a, it's a German press agency, and he had this famous quote that's always cited: uh, "Of in the in the event oh, yeah. that I am reincarnated, I would like to return as a deadly virus in order to contribute something to solve overpopulation." What a sick bastard! And, yeah, I, we're I hope just... he's reincarnated as as a pig's rectum. Oh my god. <laughs> Well, one of the jokes that, or the points that my friend made that I, I just, I love this is he made the point that, you know, he didn't, we didn't have to, he didn't have to wait to die to be reincarnated as a deadly virus because he was already a deadly virus while he was alive. Mm. <laughs> and it, the whole system that he worked for, that he was beholden to as an inbred member of the aristocracy uh, is very much the vi the virus class because humanity is not this. We're, our children 
are told in school that they are like a cancer or a virus on a host uh, destroying Mother Gaia and creating global warming and all these things. It's actually not the case. That That has been put on them. Humanity is actually something very different and beautiful, especially when we are progressing and building infrastructure and making our lives better. There's actually something beautiful about that that's anti-viral-like. Whereas the oligarchy, you could say, yes, they actually behave the way that they're convincing the kids of the world uh, humanity is. And that they, all they know how to do is to latch on parasitically, undermine whatever host that they've suckled on, and then they destroy their host and themselves. Um, and they, they somehow can reproduce in a weird slime mold-like way. So in terms of like, what is the Green New Deal? I started with Prince Philip because I wanted people to get a sense of the deeper intentions and continuity of institutions uh, of what is the where the Green New Deal comes from. He himself, um, we know that the Green New Deal originated with Lord Adair Turner, for example. In its modern incarnation, Lord Adair Turner um, is a figure who was the, uh, he was a member of the, the British cabinet in uh, for four years. Um, he's the head regulator of the city of London, formerly, uh, for about five years. And uh, he is also a, a collaborator of George Soros with the Independent Institute of, of, uh, of Economic Thinking. No, sorry, the, the, the New Institute for Economic Thinking that George Soros created and funded in 2009. Ed R. Turner is the, the chairman up until 2019 of this thing. Now, hey, Matthew, put, sorry, sorry to interrupt yeah. you uh, on yeah. your presentation. I'm not getting a slide. I'm just. Oh, weird. OK, that was strange. Sorry yeah, about go, that. One, go one for go one. For, I will. Four. But I'll. I'll oh, OK, I'll yep, yep, OK, yep, you're good. <clears throat> go. But even before Adair Turner put this thing out and, and it was only later adopted in the United States. So it's not a U.S. initiative. This is purely British. Um, this thing took form over the course of. 40 plus years of U.S. deindustrialization and actually transatlantic deindustrialization after 1971, when the dollar was removed from the gold standard and was floated onto the markets. And what was unleashed was an idea of a post-industrial consumer society that would replace the formerly industrial, dirty type of economy that had dominated from 1935 until 71. Um, so <clears throat> who were some of the people that were working with Prince Philip because what what did Prince Philip do in the course of his wasted life? The, all of the years he could have been do, doing something useful. Ninety nine years is a long time for a person. Um, what did he invest in? Well, he's known as being the for twenty five or thirty years he was the controller, the president of the World Wildlife Fund for Nature. Um, what where did that come from? What is this? Well, he founded this this thing with. Two other individuals. One individual was named Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands. Oh, yeah. So frame. Yeah. From the guy who was famous for having created the Bilderberger Group um, as yeah. Prince of the Netherlands in 1954. Uh, He's also a former Nazi. Genius. Yeah. And another former Nazi. Yes. Um, and you, it's hard to say the word former with these people. No. <laughs> no. Ed, Ed Prince Philip himself was also somebody who, I mean, you know, he was born into and was and studied under Nazi controlled uh, uh, schools and high schools all the way till the age of like 14 or 15. His th his four older sisters all married high level Nazi SS officers. Uh, and I don't want I'm not the type of person to hold somebody's youthful uh, like what happened to them when they were young against them in their older age. If, you know, George Soros had to work with Nazis when he was a kid to stay alive. Uh, Prince Philip worked in, and lived with Nazis. And so did Prince Bernhard. As a young man, he worked as, an, as a Nazi officer. Is this, 
entirely something you could hold them accountable when they're older. Well, not if they've repented and changed their ways, but if they, if they keep on doing those Nazi-like things all the way through their, their older years, yeah, that's definitely something you could hold them accountable for. Um, and the third guy who was responsible for co-founding the World Wildlife Fund in 1961 with Prince Philip and Prince Bernhard is uh, Julian Huxley. And that's, uh, the yes. that's the figure right there we're looking at. It's Sir Julian Huxley, who was the founder of uh, UNESCO, in 1946, uh, the United Nations Education, Science, and Cultural Organization, which featured a manifesto that he wrote called UNESCO, its, its Purpose and Its Philosophy, which is available, easily readable, not easily, I mean, it's, it's readable if you got a hard stomach, um, but it's easily findable online and it's small. Anybody should, should read this, take an hour just to read through the, at least the first 30 pages. Um, and I took this quote out of it where he, he, this is 1946 and Julian Huxley is talking about eugenics and how important eugenics is as the most important branch of the sciences. That is the science of, uh, cleaning, cleaning the human gene pool, uh, which Hitler was famous for having put in full force. Um, now he's saying that this is Julian Huxley is saying that this is so important, but the problem is Hitler has rendered eugenics um, he, his, his, his actions in applying a eugenics policy to cleanse the, the pure German, German race of its, of its weaker, you know, uh, of its, its people, criminals, people, low IQ, uh, people who are uh, ethnically not clean. It's made it unfathomable for the rest of the world who have become rightfully horrified by it. And so he says, we have to change our approach in the post-war age to make the unthinkable become thinkable. And his words directly are, are just stark, where he says, political unification and some sort of world government will be required in the post-war age. Even though any radical eugenical, eugenic policy will be for many years politically and psychologically impossible, it will be important for UNESCO to see that the eugenic problem is examined with the greatest care and that the public mind is informed of the issues at stake so that much that is now unthinkable may at least become thinkable. So what does he do? What does he do in to carry out this program. Well, on the one hand, 1947, he creates the International Conservation Movement. Um, he's the founder of that as a way to start channeling hum the human ethos and ethics from being loving your neighbor and loving humanity and hating empire, which was, think about it, right? This is the 1940s, the independence movements in Africa, in the Middle East, in Iran, in Asia, in India are, are very hot, Gandhi, Jawaharlal Nehru, are growing in steam. The Pan-African movement is growing in steam. You got people like Paul Robeson, FDR's after FDR has died by this point through mysterious circumstances, but his allies who who share his mission are alive and well in power positions in the U.S. Like Henry Wallace, Harry Dexter White, um, Paul Robeson is a major civil rights leader working with these figures as well inside of the Paul United Robeson States. Paul Robeson is an evil communist. Yeah, like it, it, this is how he's he's remembered by those who have written our history books as a as a commie. Um, but these were all the yeah, champions. There's that binary thinking injecting it over and over and over again. And repetition. Yeah, exactly. So uh, what Huxley is looking at is is how do you channel the world ethos away from the love of progress, the 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 joy of having just put down fascism, wanting to alleviate world hunger, and you know do the things that Roosevelt laid out with his four freedoms. You know, creating a, a just economic system of win-win cooperation in the post-war age 
founded upon the elimination of poverty, of want, of of, of fear of uh, of secret police, things like that. And and so the idea, the strategy became okay, rewrap eugenics, and which is effectively an, another form of Malthusianism of population controlled by the elite of London, and do it in a way that would involve uh, getting people to 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 love the environment in a way that has them think that the environment's major enemy is human beings themselves. And um, we have here, one of the key figures who he worked very close with is uh, Sir Alexander King. He's another key figure in this coterie with Prince Philip. And Sir Alexander King was the uh, the, the director of the OECD Science Policy Directorate. Um, he worked a very high level with the, with Henry Tizard and uh, in the British uh, Empire Science Policy Directorate that also will will tie in if we do a show on UFOs and the, the MK Ultra uh, creation of the UFO uh, um, cult. But, but the, the US Navy told me that they're, they're UFOs out there, Matthew, the UFOs. Sir Henry Tizard and Alexander King will play a role in that story. So maybe yep. next week we'll, we'll talk about that. But Alexander King says it directly, who is the founder of the... the so he... He was the founder of the Club of Rome with Aurelio Pichai um, in 1968. The Club of Rome is is working very closely with the World Wildlife Fund to cr to create a new artificial science to justify the idea that we're overpopulated, we produce too much, and that humanity's main main enemy is humanity, not empire. And he says so directly in the. In no, this so empire is not the problem here. How stupid of us, Matthew. No, if anything, empire is the natural outgrowth of human aspirations. Oh, uh, I get yeah. it. Now. Because it when you have, sense. yeah, you have nations. Humans, humans want more, so they organize themselves into nation states. Nation states then become selfish uh, because they want more, and so they beat out. They try to beat out their weaker neighbor nation states to subvert them and become empire. Makes and then sense. empire then tries to, you know, just naturally do what it does by being the representation of our natural selfish impulses. Uh, and might, you know, try to, will we'll destroy the world and, and nature. So that's just the natural thoughtless course of, of evolution. You can't stop that. Um, and and that's, the, that's the way that they, they wired the formula to brainwash us. So Alexander King writes uh, the foreword of a book called uh, On the First Global Revolution, documenting sort of the, the biography of the Club of Rome and how it created this new science of pollution and overpopulation. And in the, the prefatory remarks, he writes, in searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine and the like, would fit the bill. All these dangers are caused by human intervention, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. Right, so very clear. Very clear that they're they're they were looking, they were sitting and problem solving and trying to think. And there's a whole science called problematic, the science of looking for problems, not solving problems, but looking for problems. That was a big thing sure. in the 1950s and 60s that he was a leader of, and that's what the the idea of of climate change as our enemy came out of. Uh, I'm gonna say a few words again um, about that, but just to get across the the big Bible, uh, the scientific Bible that shaped modern strategy. Biden's climate Green New Deal policy, the Great Reset policy, all of that came out of uh, a book called The Limits to Growth that was funded uh, by the yep. Club of Rome. Maurice Strong. Maurice Strong was the key, a key figure in this. And actually, the uh, the meeting that occurred 
that organized the the limits to growth project that was eventually carried out by two uh, basically computer analysts uh, who were nobodies, uh, Jay Forrester and uh, Dennis Meadows. In an, it was published in 1972, but it was begun as a project in 1970 in Montebello, Quebec, Canada, um, in a Club of Rome meeting presided over by Alexander King. Caroliet Trudeau was there. Maurice Strong obviously was there, as well as uh, Maurice Lamontagne, who is a key figure who was the president of the Privy Council Office at the time in Canada. That's sort of the nerve center controlling the Canadian system. Um, most commonwealths that are not republics have a Privy Council that that acts that way. And, and we could talk about that later. But um, so what they did, and this is Canadian taxpayer money that went into this project that started this project. Um, you're welcome. <clears throat> Americans, sorry. <laughs> uh, it, it, it manifested by, by basically saying, okay, we can use linear computer modeling in order to shape the various chosen metrics. And unfortunately, I just realized this is a low quality, low res graph here, but this is what they published. Uh, that looks at how population is connected to resource use, births, uh, food per capita use, technology, pollution, and just tie these variables together in, again, linear binary computer modeling, project those those linear extrap um, uh, data sets into the future, and then predict when you will hit a collapse so that governments can inform themselves on how to mitigate or slow down the natural collapse phase of their closed system, which all computer models are closed systems, just like any mathematical system is a closed system because it's it's founded upon certain limited principles, uh, you know, that are just there. They're they're embedded into the the, the binary framework of, of what you program. The re reality of the universe and the human intellect does not exhibit any of those closed system characteristics, which is what these these very uncreative uh, social engineers refuse to look at. Um, so one, uh, you know what, I'm not even gonna read that. Uh, basically this became again, the Bible for the environmentalist movement. Um, all it really was, was a recapitulation of Thomas Malthus's views on population, um, where P P Thomas Malthus in, in 1799 published his essay, new essays on, uh, on population. Uh, where, you know, he described for the first time the the fact that human beings grow geometrically, food reproduces arithmetically, so you'll always be able to forecast a collapse, and thus that will inform sci a scientifically managed society, in his case it was the British Empire, to manage and control your populations before you hit the collapse, and that's the duty of the elite. Uh, very um, Malthusian of him. Yeah, right. And so that's why they called these guys the Neo-Malthusians, the, the revival of this Malthusian idea. Technocrats. Exactly, technocrats, um, which is just uncreativists. They they don't believe in hu human creative reason. Except so, for themselves. Well, they like to say those. Yeah, they, there's a certain, uh, yeah. yeah. They're they, creative they, they, in their destruction, that's for sure. Yeah. And that's actually where the idea of creative destruction, you know, as a stupid idea that, that was promoted by Schumpeter, uh, comes from because Schupender was also a part of this this crowd uh, working through the Fabian Society, through the London School of Economics, uh, through Harvard back in the 1930s and 40s, was this idea that the mystification of how human progress happens. Schupender basically said, we need destruction to get creativity. So destruction is good. And, uh, you know, if you get sufficient amounts of it, then you can, we will myst mystically self-organize and create innovation. So if you're very Luciferian, if you ask me. 
Essentially, yeah, because these guys are looking at things like a dark age or a collapse function that led into the the dark age of of Europe as a good thing because they would say, well, the Renaissance that had all of these great scientific and medical and, and other discoveries in the arts, all of that happened after the dark age and the dark age was chaos and, and you know, Europe lost 50% of its population. So thus the, the dark age, which came before created the Renaissance. That's, that's the simplistic way of looking at it. That's not true um, for anybody who might be confused about that. There's something else going on. So um, yeah, they're, they're essentially licking their lips about the idea of a great reset, you know, the idea of, of maybe it's it's a good thing that we're going to have to unleash an age of depopulation, chaos, and maybe even thermonuclear war uh, onto the earth. Maybe it's a good thing because maybe maybe something more creative is going to come out of this uh, at the end of the day. Um, they're insane. So this gets us in the question of what is actually, uh, what is the climate crisis? What is, what is, is there a climate crisis? Is CO2, carbon dioxide, which is the, the primary enemy of those uh, Green New Dealers today, you know, they want to decarbonize the world. So they, they, they say, they, they look at carbon as a, as a pollutant. Is that true? Is carbon even a carbon dioxide a pollutant? Um, well, on the one hand, there's, there's some funny things here that, that are just interesting anomalies that make some of these guys uncomfortable. One thing that came out just uh, two years ago were these NASA um mappings of the earth of the of the green biodiversity of the earth and their their results were that the earth today has something like 10 percent more biodiversity than it did a few decades ago um it's growing not going the other way despite the fact that co2 and develop you know co2 has increased massively over the past 20 20 30 years so why is there so much increase of biodiversity, especially centered in China and Russia, uh, sorry, China and India? And it's because China and India have been committed, and um, I admit that India is more of a basket case right now. However, there has been an economic commitment towards greening deserts. China has things like the Move South Water North, biggest water project in human history. Two of the three phases are already done that moves vast amounts of water from the overabundant water surplus south into canals constructed along the way into the the drought ridden north through uh, desert regions that green things along the way they have a a, a massive uh, desert reclamation program and their industrial programs <clears throat> they're producing a lot of co2 a hell of a lot but despite that they the co2 seems to be having a positive effect upon the green spaces on the trees and the biodiversity of the world so again how is that happening in you know, it's a good paradox. And I'll, I'll, this this is a picture here of uh, of of something that if you if you're a farmer, you have a greenhouse, you will want to buy a CO2 generator. Every greenhouse and farmer who has a greenhouse buys these things, which produce CO2 that they infuse into your greenhouse. Why? Because it's a plant food. Uh, right now, the Earth has on average something like 411 parts per million of co2 as part of the the overall greenhouse gases uh that's considered an emergency uh that's causing all of the climate uh, the global warming and things to happen in fact inside of these greenhouses these these generators produce about they increase the co2 to the to anywhere between 600 and a thousand parts per million of co2 and what happens it's not like plants die they grow too two times or more yeah, uh, green, plentiful, more vitamin rich. They love it. 
yeah, the, more we, the more we produce CO2, the more plants are happy. Which is what the <laughs> fossil record bears, by the way. Yes, that's right. That's right. And it, yeah, when you look at pat periods, and that's actually what we're going to look at a little bit. But first, before we get into the deeper fossil history and, and deeper records of, of climate change, uh, and we're talking hundreds of million years because I have a couple of graphs on that, just to, just to tie in the 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 more modern this is between 1850 or 1770 1751 and, and 2015 the rate of human co2 emissions uh on approximately broken down into some of the bigger key parts of the world <clears throat> and as you can see most of this spikes after 1950 with the massive industrial revolution that came out of world war ii the the marshall plan there was a, a huge increase in living standards in overall productivity of society and population levels went from something like 1.8 billion all the way up to i mean we're at almost 8 billion today in a very short period a couple of generations after world war ii so that massive increase in co2 output you would be we're being told is tied to global warming. Do we see the same uh, trends in warming that we see in carbon dioxide emissions? And here, this is this is just another graph that I got uh, from the uh, the NOAA, and this goes from 1880 to 2000. I think in 2015. Do we see the same trends in any any way at all? No. In fact, we had. <laughs> this this is the overall mean temperatures over land and ocean, okay? Now, the idea of mean temperatures is already very problematic. However, let's just use what they have. And we see that there was an increasing rate between 1880 and all the way up through the early uh, or mid-1930s. There was a general uh, warming trend. Or actually, you know what? This actually has it at 19 early 1900s to 1938 or so. There's an overall warming trend. That, that, spike, that spikes around 1942, 43. And then from that point, 1943, all the way until like 1978, 79, there's no warming, right? There's an overall zero warming. And in fact, uh, if you look at Time Magazine, National Geographic, and any of these things produced in the 1970s, there was a big warning of a global ice age that they were, that everyone was ringing the, the, the alarms on. Yep, I remember. And the World Wildlife Fund, the Club of Rome were all saying, yes, this is this is happening and it's caused this global cooling by human CO2. And there's articles that have been published uh, trying to link the, the collapse into cooling that will be the giant crisis caused yep. by human uh, CO2 and pollution that was then being used to justify why we had to deindustrialize civilization to stop global cooling. But then all of a sudden that stopped happening. And for about 30 so, or, or so years, there was a warming trend all the way up until the year 2000. And so they had to change their narrative and say, no, it's actually causing global warming, but it's the same effect that they wanted politically, which is shut down industrial civilization. Um, so there's actually no connection. And if you look at a lot of that rate of, of, of uh, green, greenhouse gas emissions, methane, CO2, really, really got really underway in the year 2003, 2004, when China, its neighbors began to really want to end their poverty problems and massively started a program that led up until the Belt and Road Initiative. A lot of industrial output, and they're they're bringing their their development projects to Africa. But you see no analogous rate of increase of temperature. In fact, it's leveled off. So for the past twenty years, there's been an overall what's called the global warming pause. That's how they say it. Um, all forecasts of 
you know, we're going to be under ice cap, uh, underwater in 2050 and all of the, you know, we have to stop CO2 to, in order to, to keep global temperatures rising within 1.5 degrees, which is the current, you know, uh, COP26 idea or narrative, it's not even, it doesn't measure up to the empirical data. There is no warming happening. Um, and the other thing now, if you take a step back, take a step back, and this gets at what you were talking about, if over the last 500 mil million years, uh, what we have here are periods where this is what you need to know about climate change, okay? For the most part, things were a lot hotter at times, and it's very cyclical, right? The earth is going through some things that we have yet to discover that are very violent, very, very strange changes in our solar system caused by the behavior of the sun, uh, the electromagnetic field of the sun that affects the cosmic rays coming into the earth. There are solar flares causing all sorts of under un, undiscovered effects in terms of volcanism, earthquakes uh, that cause vast destruction onto life. But we do know that in the, in the fossil records at periods where we, where it was colder even, there's periods where it was colder, but there was in the last ice age, for example, but there was 10 to 20 times more CO2 in the atmosphere without any human activity, no industrial activity, and yet it was colder. So already there, there's a huge out of whackedness. On the other hand, you know, we have periods where there's also more CO2 and it was hotter than it is today, more, and there was a there's a richer biodiversity in, in so many ways. Um, in the Paleocene, for example. So you have these mass extinction cycles. We we seem to have these variables. And in some ways, there is some connection, okay? Admittedly, there is connection between CO2 and temperature that you can find in the larger scale records of, of climate, of, of, of geology. And if you just look at, this takes the 600,000 year uh, cycle on top and a shorter sampling of that of 70,000 years um, at the bottom. You see that there is a connection, obviously, right? Yeah, but correlation is never causation. Bam. So what you find when you zero in on it, and uh, this this figure gets at it really well, is that the peaks of the temperature changes, where it gets maximum temperature, come before the peaks of CO2. And same thing for the, the, the troughs at the bottom. So it seems as though it's the temperature changes that are causing the CO2 to increase or decrease and then if you think about well, what's causing temperature changes, again, you can't look at human industrial activity or cars or SUVs. You got to look at things like the sun uh, causing the heating up of oceans that release something like half of the CO2 from you know, phytoplankton and, and all of the biodiversity in the oceans, which is more in many ways than the amount of uh, photosynthetic life on, on ground. It's just that you don't see it and, and a lot of them are single-celled. Another thing is uh, volcanoes, right? There's 10 times more volcanoes today than we thought there were 10 or 15 years ago underwater. And each volcano emits about as much as all of human activity does in the course of a year. If there's 10 times more, I mean, are you, do people not even realize that this might have more to do with heating of the earth and, and climate than, than other things? And also what causes the volcanoes to be active or inactive? What relationship does that have to the sun, to the uh, other galactic phenomenon that are happening that we have yet to discover? Because we don't have a space program because we shut it down for the most part. And we can't put a human being back on, on the moon today because we shut down and dismantled all of our rocketry in the 1970s when we went into a consumer society. So, I mean, Trump, for all of his problems, did try to revive that 
uh, manned space program. And uh, God willing, that is something salvageable that can drive some space diplomacy for the future because Russia and China are going to space fast. That's a side note. Um, <clears throat> this also bears upon terraforming too, right? Like how do you, uh, how do you take your lessons of, of how do you terraform a planet like Mars? How do you have an 80, 90 year terraforming policy without first learning the basics of earth-based intelligent bioengineering by doing things like greening a desert? You got to learn how to green a desert on earth before we can talk about being hubristic enough to go and talk and green a desert on Mars or planet of uh, a, a, a moon of Mars or Jupiter that, you know, we have to, this is our testing ground here. All that to say, okay, side, that was a segue. Um, <clears throat> so again, here's another more uh, close up view of, of a, a direct data set that people could take to the bank um, of just simply an obvious lag of uh, temperature of CO2 after temperature changes. So again, it's not this, it's, it's not causal, as you said. And here's another quick image of the current hiatus. They call it the, the global warming hiatus of, uh, on the top. So again, no real connection to CO2, which is bears the question, why are we making this our enemy? How could people who are educated into PhDs, who have PhDs, become so susceptible and malleable to this argument? And it has everything to do with the fact that statistical computer thinking have transplanted natural human moral reasoning, the natural thing that all babies do when they ask questions why, learning how to walk and talk and, 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 and be in awe of the universe. They ask parents why this, why the sky blue, what that's a natural thing. We shouldn't stop doing, looking for causality and applying our discoveries in play and, and testing them out to learn how to speak a language, right? No kid learned to read a dictionary before they spoke their first language. It's something you do organically. And it, as you mature, you're a healthy person. If you look at, at, at Leonardo da Vinci or, uh, Christ, Johannes Kepler, or any of the greatest scientists who made paradigm-shifting insights into the fabric, the, our, our knowledge of the fabric of the universe, were also poets. They were, they were musicians. They were scientists. They had political, strong political insights. They were often engaged more often than not in some form of political battle. And this, they were not from master classes. They weren't part of aristocratic bloodlines. They were oftentimes, look at Ben Franklin, right? The guy didn't even go to university. He didn't go to high school. He was a, a, a guided by his own internally organized powers of reason and his discoveries in electricity were intri intrinsically tied in his mind to his work on the American Revolution and creating a new type of self-government that had never existed before. It was two parts of the same process. And people who thought like him, like Anton Lavoisier, who was his close friend in France and a leader of the French Revolution that turned into a color revolution, where Lavoisier's head was was chopped off with many other scientists, he thought and understood the same way. And this art of thinking was targeted. the The oligarchs who, like Prince Philip and and um, you know, their 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 retainers and high, uh, higher upper level managers like Alexander King or Julian Huxley or Huxley's grandfather Thomas Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, they are aware that this quality in human beings has to be undermined and destroyed for their system and their idea of natural law to win out. Which gets me the last quote that I want to end this little mini PowerPoint on, then maybe we could just chat before, I know we, we've already gone past a little bit our time, our time limit. 
But more slam good, on Matthew. I'm still awake. Yeah, you're awake. <laughs> <All right. laughs> cool. Uh, so <clears throat> Maurice Lamontang is one of the lesser appreciated figures. And I, I mentioned him earlier. He was a co-founder of the Canadian Club of Rome, a close colleague with uh, Alexander King and, um, and, a, and a, a president of the Privy Council office. Um, he actually worked with the Roundtable Movement in Canada when they were organizing something called the uh, the Arts and Letters Commission in 1949 to de-Americanize Canada in as part of a social engineering program to create a synthetic identity for Canadians to be more manipulated by the empire. That's a whole other story, actually. I don't want to open up that can of worms. But all that to say, he's a high-level person, um, and he lays out, because he's in charge of a certain plant program to... To do what Biden is doing now or what Obama did by creating a, um, a scientifically managed governance, uh, he's in charge of doing this 40 years ago. That's when Canada had our total government reform um, is was from 1968 to 73 under Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And he was in charge of the science reform component um, where he lays out the problem exactly in it. And there... This, this document is something I, I read in a book called The Chaining of Prometheus by F. Ronald Hayes during the research that I did um, for my book series on the untold history of Canada, um, which went through, I mean, it, it took me through a lot of, for several years into a lot of, uh, a lot of reading and a lot of, I mean, I spent a lot of time at the archives of Canada. So I started reading this guy's published works, Maurice Lamontagne, and Lamontagne explicitly targets in this book in, in the in the science policy report um the american system of political economy of the 19th century he he talks about it and how delusional the americans were under lincoln to believe that there could be a science of economy that connects mankind with with god by virtue of of progress and he makes fun of that thinking what a delusion delusional people these americans were who believe that we could come closer to god by loving our fellow man and expressing that in the form of scientific and technological progress and that sh that that should somehow define the behavior of money and he mocks it it's interesting to see how he's talking about it um but then he talks about the problem of creative thought so echoing alexander king whose disgusting words we just read um I, I have a block on the upper quote. I've got two quotes here. Um, CJ or V, could one of you guys read the top quote where he says nature imposes? Because I can't see some of the words. Yeah. Nature imposes. Definite, uh, def I'm sorry. My screen is off to the side. Okay. Nature imposes definite constraints on technology itself. And if man persists in ignoring them, the net effect of his action in the long run can be to reduce rather than to increase nature's potential as the provider of resources and habitable, sp uh, habitable space. But then an obvious question arises. How can we stop man's creativeness? It's so satanic. Ooh. It's absolutely satanic. And he's, again, he's not embarrassed to say this in public. No, it's sick. Uh -huh. People are sick. And they're, in, they're involved in foreign policy. That's, yeah. It's the same. Folks, this ideology right here is is the ideology from which all the other ideologies from foreign policy and business and banking and all the crap is linked to this ideology right there. That's the seed. Yeah. And, and, and he does a little bit of a Delphic sleight of hand in the next breath. Um, yeah. Actually, if you could read the next quote yeah. as well. How can yeah. we proclaim a moratorium on technology? 
It is impossible to destroy existing knowledge, impossible to paralyze man's inborn desire to learn, to invent, and to innovate. In the final analysis, we find that technology is merely a tool created by man in pursuit of his infinite aspirations and is not the significant element invading the natural environment. It is material growth itself that is a source of conflict between man and nature. All right. So here you get the, um, <clears throat> the, the again, I called it the Delphic That's a little, of yeah, hand, Exactly. Right? A little there there. After he tells you the truth, the harsh reality, the intent of this, yeah. this, this, this satanic vampire, he then tells you, well, you know, a little softening statement. A softening statement. And what is he doing? He's setting the groundwork for a brainwashing operation because by saying, okay, it's impossible to paralyze, he recognizes the inborn desire to learn, invent, and innovate. That's true. It's good. That's a good thing. But then he's, he, he has in his mind and what he wants you to have in your mind is a formula that Okay, when we have been creative and we've uh, invented and innovated, we've expressed that in the form of technological progress. And in his world, this is 1972. So there's been a lot of dam building, like building of, of hydroelectric dams, uh, big infrastructure projects, which what do they do? They upset the natural equilibrium of unchanging nature every time we do that. So thus every, and every time you build a big project, it obliges you to maintain and do more projects. It's a, a irreversible uh, trajectory that you put yourself on. So he says, okay, since we can't get rid of that inborn desire to invent and, and be creative, what we can do is encourage technology and science and, and to, to be directed towards the resolution of material, the problem of the conflict of man and nature, which is material growth. So we will now find ways of incentivizing in schools, in education, in, in economics, in business activities, which reduce the conflict between man and nature, which re reduce material growth, windmills, solar panels, uh, all of these things grew out of that program. Because if you, you could say, okay, let's channel everybody's creativity into a green grid, green infrastructure, green this, green that. But the effect will be the constriction of your ability to sustain human life. So you you plant windmills and, and solar panels all over the world, or you, you design new technologies, right, for bioethanol, burning food, which is 40% of the U.S. corn production today, goes into burning it for gas tanks because we're told that that's cleaner. Um you're burning food while people are starving to death every day. It's crazy. That's satanic, like you said, but it's the effect of a certain perverse inversion, inversion of human creative innovation. So that is what they have done already. And that is what they want to amplify massively as we go into a great reset of the system. So all that to say that that's the great reset. That is the green new deal in its essence. There's more to it, but it's not based on science. It's not based on any type of real concern or justice, even though they, they use the word, you know, environmental justice for all. It's not based on any of that. It's based on an oligarchy wanting to impose its perceived right to control a depopulated world society under a new eugenics. And again, look at Julian Huxley. What else did he also innovate? Transhumanism. The word comes from Julian Huxley's uh, work. And people are thinking, oh, transhumanism and uh, 
That means we're gonna we're we're heading towards some conscious ascension. No, it basically means the end of humanity. These are all euphemistic terms, folks. Yep. Sick. Yep. It's sick. So I want people to. I mean, you know, oftentimes, and I guess you guys are in the same situation. People ask, "Well, what do we do? What do we do?" I, you know. I got to say, I don't have all of the answers in terms of the tactical uh, solution of what do we do, but I know overall top down, you have to think top down and globally yeah. what can and is happening that needs to happen is what we see coming out of the multipolar alliance and the approach, mm. the philosophical approach of Russia, China, and the growing array of nations that are jumping on board, the Belt and Road Initiative, the, the Polar Silk Road, and that entire alternative a political economic security architecture that has grown, especially in the last seven years, and it's growing at a faster rate every day. Um, they want to work with Western countries that are act acting like basket case suicide uh, psych jobs right now. They, they're trying to speak to the better angels of our nature and offer us olive branches and chances to work with them. So the offer is there. There are, there are still patriots in, Britain, in uh, Greece, in, across Europe, in Canada, in the United States, who have enough sensibility to know that that has a future and they need to do everything possible to creatively get their nations to get on board with that system. And in so doing, rediscover what's good about themselves that, that's worth that's worth saving. Uh, or we're going to see a dark age. We could easily have a dark age happen. The, the collapse is already overdue. Um, of the bubble economy that we're sitting on. Oh, yeah. We, right? We've got uh, a bunch of psychopaths running a, 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 a military policy that could unleash a preempt, what they think of as a preemptive nuclear strike on their perceived enemies, Russia and China. Right. Uh, that would that would immediately induce a retaliation, and that would probably put society onto the slow track of, uh, you know, I mean, well, that'll, it, that'll it, set it, us back it, into the Stone it, Age, you know? Yeah, huh? it, fits, it fits their goal of slowing down technological development. I mean, does, you hear this language all the time. We cannot allow a rival to, to, to exist. These idiots don't realize. The, 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 man, if it wasn't for what the sacred would call a zone B or the multipolar world, that we, as you and I would discuss it, if it wasn't for the fact that these powers exist, that, these, the, 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 that there's an alternative to this insanity, I would yeah. say all hope would have been lost. But thank God there is an alternative to this insanity. Yeah. And thank God the majority of the world is signing up to it you got close to 160 countries that are on board already. That's the majority of the world. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It, I would be a, a much more depressed human being if that process wasn't happening. I, I, yep. We'd probably be much more dead human beings if that process wasn't happening, actually. Well, they'd probably, you know, ch change my gender for sure, you know? <laughs> well, I, I, I think that, uh, that overall... Um, you know, the, the, the oligarchy probably would have liked to have already blown out the system years ago. Yeah. I mean, back when they were killing Qaddafi, I think that the idea was to immediately uh, kill, do, do the Qaddafi onto his side, spread it onto Iran, do a regime change there way back in 2013, 14, uh, as you know, they undermined Russia and China and brought about their, uh, their one world government. Um, after an economic meltdown that they blew out, but they couldn't blow out their their bubble system at that at when Russia and China began to really uh, intervene onto that agenda by stopping the overthrow of of uh, Bashar al-Assad, by merging the Belt and Road Initiative with the Eurasian Economic Union led by Russia. Um, all of a sudden, they they couldn't just blow it out 
while having this alternative system in place because they know i mean the oligarchy knows that if you if you don't destroy that other system while you're blowing out your current system of the transatlantic everybody is going to jump on board that other one that you don't control so that's been the defining character i think of the past seven to eight years has been the effort to try to do everything possible uh, to the point that their crazy is really showing right they don't have the ideas necessary or the capability to do what they want to do and destroy China and Russia. But that doesn't stop them from, from acting on the same obsolete script that they were, you know, acting on 10, 20, 30 years ago. I mean, They're just doing the same thing. I mean, literally, John Mearsheimer was in Australia threatening the Australians that if you don't choose us and you choose China, well, you don't want to see us get mad. You don't want to see us get nasty because we have a propensity to be really nasty to those who stand against us. That means you're against us. Mm-hmm. This, this sick psychotic binary thinking that is rooted within the very philosophy of Lucifer himself is insanity, man. It is insanity. It permeates all of Western thinking. It really does. It has to be rejected. It has to be resisted. It has to be fought tooth and nail. Yeah, and you fight it. I mean, there's there's multiple levels upon which one one has to understand how to fight this thing. But the key thing is that there's a there's a cultural battle, an epistemological battle that goes back a very long time over the question of of wisdom. You know, I touched upon it regarding um, the Da Vinci, the Da Vinci quality in all of us, right? That every human baby has the same potentials that were actualized by certain people like Leonardo Da Vinci. Um, who didn't just see himself as a specialist in a little, you know, compartmentalized specialization field. Um, he was able to access nat- the natural human wonder that he then applied with self-conscious rigor, self-discipline, right? He used his time well, and he was able to use his time. It's a gift that we all have, and some we, we don't know how much time we're going to have on this earth, but what, what we do have, we have to be smart with it, right? And he was able to make real penetrating universal insights into every field he put his mind to with unbroken concentration. And Ben Franklin did the exact same thing in the United States. He was exhibiting the the Da Vinci quality um, as a poet. You know, his Poor Richard's Almanac is full of poetry uh, that were all designed to enrich the uh, the insights and and uh, wisdom of his society when he knew they he didn't have a citizenry capable of of carrying out a, a revolution against the world's biggest empire they he just, it wasn't there in the in the 1730s 1740s so he worked tirelessly with his control his his efforts with the printing press as well as his work on science and science pedagogy and inventions to help increase the power of cognition of morality of his society such that later on the 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 soil could be ripe enough that the type of political rupt change he was going for could happen and people could be willing to like risk their lives for that higher cause. So today we're in a situation where we have to sort of take control of our own, you know, education, our own development. So it's good that you guys have created a platform for people to do that here on, on rogue news. Um, that's what, you know, my wife, Cynthia and I have been trying to also do this with the Canadian Patriot review and, and the rising tide foundation. And for those who are listening, we're, um, we just finished a, a, cl- a lecture cycle. So we were bringing pretty much thought leaders, uh, people who are scientists from various fields of specialization, who are heretics, uh, who have, who have really resisted, uh, this, this pre this scientific priesthood in various ways. 
at, to fight for truth. And we've invited them and they've given uh, lectures every Sunday over the course of the last three months uh, in a science symposium entitled As Above, So As Below. If they go to the risingtidefoundation.net site, they can see the most recent uh, class given by uh, Dr. Michael Claridge, who is a leader of the electric universe uh, field. Um, on the cosmology of the electric universe. It's a wonderful lecture he gave on where real science is actually at. Um, <clears throat> that in terms of, you know, he, he's actually working with teams of electrical engineers, building actual experimentally verifiable systems in place, producing plasma with electrical currents that are generating transmutation and fusion processes, creations of new elements that are verifiable. They've been verified in other laboratories around the world. Uh, by rejecting the standard theory model of of the atom, which is taught and practiced in every major university uh, around the world, which which de denies experimentally verifiable data. And again, his model that he goes through ties a galaxy formation to cell formation. There's similar processes on the large in non-living as well as in living physics. So um, that's that's just a sampling of the sort of thing we've been doing. We will, as of in two weeks, we're going to start a new class series on statecraft with 15 classes every Sunday, uh, going back to ancient Athens, ancient China, uh, with the battles by Confucius, Mencius, as well as Plato to create philosopher kings um, in their times against real imperial geopolitical structures that were trying to dominate the world 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Um, we're going to have classes on that, the role of Aeschylus and his work in the Orestes trilogy and, and ancient tragedy in uh, helping to provide insights and solutions to breaking uh, geopolitical traps of divide and conquer. Um, we're going to have classes on Charlemagne, the birth of the modern nation state. Uh, uh, on, on, For example, we're going to have classes on Dante and Dante's work to battle the, the oligarchy of Venice. And we're going to have work on the on the real origins of the American Revolution. What was the United States? What was it meant to become? How was that subverted? And it will have work on Africa, the Pan-African movement of the 20th century. So it'll be we're going to have the whole schedule available on our website tomorrow. And if anybody wants to to receive an invite and listen live or to the recordings, uh, send us an email at info at risingtidefoundation.net. That's info at risingtidefoundation.net. You'll get the invites. Ideally, we ask people to become a monthly donor. Uh, it could be anywhere between $5 a month to the sky is the limit. And uh, that's ideally what we request if you're going to be there live and, and post questions to the, the speakers. But honestly, if you don't have that money, don't worry about it. You'll get them for free. Just send us the email. And uh, yeah, that's it. Support your content creators, folks. Support those who are out there just busting our butts to put this information out there. I love the work that Matthew does. Make sure you go out there, you support him, you support his work. Him and his wife are doing an amazing job up there in Canada. And it's not just limited to Canada. Their scope and their the value that they bring is global in range. It's important that we in the Western world understand this because we are being hoodwinked. We are being played. We are being lied to. We are being manipulated. And the information that Matthew and his wife Cynthia brings to the table is very instrumental in breaking that programming. You got to stop thinking binary. You got to stop thinking binary. This game is a big game, and it's a great game. It's been going on for a very long time. You want to stay on the on the very cutting edge of it. You want to stay on the very, the very, the very bleeding edge of this information. And Matthew is going to be one of those sources. He's only a handful of sources out there, and so take advantage of it, folks. Take advantage of it. Support him.